Philippians in chapter 8 this morning. As we begin our study, um, I want to remind you that we have been in the process up to two weeks ago. Um, John had said, who is worthy to loose the seal to the title deed of the earth? And if you remember with me, there's a divine outline in the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, verse 19, he says to John, write down the things that are, the things that, that, that you're seeing, and he's writing to the seven churches. We sent seven weeks speaking to the churches that Jesus wrote to. But then there was also, write down the things that you have seen. John walked with Jesus, and then he gets this divine revelation. He gets to see Jesus, not just man and God, clothed in flesh, walking on earth as a humble servant, but he gets to see Jesus and all of his glory in his glorified body, and as he sees Jesus, and then he speaks for Jesus to these seven churches, then in chapter 4, he begins this, write down the things that will take place after these things. If you think about the time that we're in right now as a nation and as a world, really, for the first time ever, the world is kind of going through something together other than a world war. And in that case, what we're finding is that this world and the things that we think we can hold on to, the things that we think that are unshakable, are being shaken. And Hebrews even says that we're to grasp onto the things that can't be shaken because the things that will be shaken can and will be. They'll be taken from us, but the things that will remain will not be taken. And that's our faith in Jesus. That's Jesus Christ and the promises that he has made us. So the question that becomes during a pandemic or during a war or during things that are unprecedented are, what's going to take place after this? Where do you think this is going? Well, timely, because here we are reading the book of Revelation, the, the revealing, the divine revealing of Jesus Christ in all of his glory and what will take place after what you and I know as these things. And so in chapter 8, we find ourselves in the Great Tribulation. Now, we begin this in chapter 6. Chapter 4 and 5 was the, the throne room in heaven. And we saw Jesus, we saw the Father, we saw the, the representation of the Spirit. And I want you to remember, if you want to go look in the book of Hebrews in chapter 8 and 9, you'll actually see that the tabernacle that was in the Old Testament was a type of and a picture of the heavenly dwelling place where God is sitting on his throne right now and for all eternity so if you're always wondering like what does the tabernacle or the temple or all these implements in the temple have anything to do with anything they're pointing us to heaven they're pointing us to jesus as the focal point and yet all these things that are physical or that are spiritually in heaven and so in chapter six we go on from the heavenly scene to this seals being opened and in chapter 6, we see six of the seven seals of the title deed to the earth. And John asked the question, who is worthy to loose the seals, to take possession of the earth? And the reality is, in our history, we can even see that there are many who were willing to take possession of the world, many who have tried to take possession and conquer the entire earth, but there's only one who's worthy. There's only one who is able to pay the price to redeem the earth to himself, and that's Jesus. But when he opens the seals, it actually opens up the judgments on earth. And I've been telling you, number one, to wake up the nation of Israel, to show them that the Messiah came and he's coming again. They're still looking for a Messiah. But number two, to shake up a Christ rejecting primarily most of the world is still rejecting Jesus Christ. And so to wake up the nation of Israel, to shake up the Christ-rejecting world, and then at the same time, to clean house, to prepare the world for the coming kingdom. Your kingdom come, is what Jesus taught us to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is already being done in heaven. So to prepare the world for the kingdom. Chapter 4 and 5, he takes up his children because we're not appointed to wrath. Chapter 6, we see the seals being opened. But as we read about the Great Tribulation, the one thing I want us to focus on is that this is what it looks like when God gives mankind what we want apart from Christ. 
you don't want me, I'll show you what it's like without me. So if you're disillusioned or if you're seeing the great tribulation period, we're reading about these judgments and we're going, oh my goodness, recognize that all of these are consequences of the world saying, we don't want you as our king. We don't want you in charge of what's going on. Okay, that's fine. So he lets go and he gives us what we've asked for over and over and over again. You might say, I've never rejected, I've never said I don't want Jesus to be Lord of all. You don't have to say that. Your actions prove what you really believe. You might say, I want Jesus to be Lord of all, but you might actually live like, I want him to have like, I want my ticket to heaven and I want to live the way I want. I want it my way. But the reality is our way leads to what we're going to read about today. Just another piece of it. And so as we look at the great tribulation, we saw last week in chapter seven that there's this parenthetical statement. He opens the six seals, he stops, and there's a bunch of stuff that takes place, and then he opens the seventh seal. And that's going to be the same case for this next series of judgments are going to be called trumpet judgments. There's going to be six trumpet blasts, six results of those trumpet blasts, there will be a break, and then there will be some things happen, and then the seventh trumpet blast. And so before the seventh seal is opened, in chapter 6, he opens the sixth seal, and it goes to chapter 7. There's this parenthetical moment where all of a sudden there's a, there's a halt. And in that halt, there are 144,000 Jews that God seals by his angel, and they are sent out as evangelists into a Christ-rejecting world. Now think about it. The six seals that were loose, there was all these horsemen and judgments and pain and evil and war. And so the thought is that after those six judgments are released, there might be more receptivity to the gospel of salvation, right? What do we need to be saved from? In the tribulation, they'll know what they need to be saved from, not only spiritually, but physically, but as these Jews go out, they're Jewish, by the way, they go out and they evangelize the world. And then at that point, there are multitudes. It says innumerable amounts of people come to the throne of God and they are cleansed in the blood of the lamb. They have white garments. And what we've learned is that those will actually be those that are martyred for their faith during the tribulation. If you become a Christian during the time of the tribulation period, you will die. It's not if. You will be martyred physically for your faith. They will put you to death for not falling in line with what the Antichrist says to do. And so in chapter 8 and 9, what we see is the seventh seal is opened. And when the seventh seal is opened, it releases seven trumpet judgments. And so the judgment, phase two, begins today in chapter 8. Aren't you glad you came here for that? And so the seventh seal is open, chapter 8, verse 1. It says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now that number, numerology in the Bible, you can take it too far, but in this case, the number seven is the number of perfection, the number of whole. And so... With that being said, he releases this seventh seal, and what happens is silence. Which is interesting to me, because in Psalm chapter 2, it says, Why do the nations rage against God? And yet, when the seventh seal is loosed, the raging, at least for a moment, seems to silence. And God opens this seal, and during this silence, it is a 30-minute silence. And I would ask you, when was the last time that you spent 30 minutes silent before God? I think oftentimes when we think about prayer or time with God, we think about worship, we think about listening, uh, but most of the time it's listening to somebody like me yak for way too long. And, but the reality is, uh, many times in our prayer, we could have a little bit more silence because not only do we have things to bring before the Lord, he has things that he wants to speak into us. He's the word of God. John chapter 1, in the beginning, the word became flesh. The word speaks. And so if the word of God is how he describes himself, I wonder how often we should spend more time listening 
than speaking in our prayer time. But that's just in the devotional thought. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, there's this passage that's kind of interesting. Solomon is on his ecclesiastical search for what really matters in life. And as he's waxing thoughtful and he's thinking a lot of things, he says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Walk prudently when you go to the house of God. Draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. And then he says this, Do not be rash with your mouth. Guilty. That's my, that's my gift of the flesh. I'm rash with my mouth. But he says, don't be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Boy, there's a lot of wisdom in that. I mean, how many conversations have you and I had lately? Maybe not together, but how many conversations have we had lately about what's going on in our nation currently? And what we're being told to do and what isn't fair and how come we can't go to... And I've been guilty of these things, by the way. We can't go to church, but we can go to Lowe's and get a, you know, get a fence or a fence post. You know, what's essential and what's not. And I can't believe. And then pandemic videos and all the things that go along with it. We're trying to reason out from our earthly perspective, what the heck's going on? Why am I not? And why have, do I have to? And and all those things. And I'm not saying those aren't things that we should talk about and think about. But I think sometimes the last thing we do is go, God, what are you up to? And as he opens the seventh seal, there is silence because I think everybody's seen the first six things happen and they're going, what's coming next? Good grief. How's it going to go down? And the reality is they can't control it. They're just waiting to see what's going to happen. And so as God's getting ready for, to premiere, it says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. Even heaven's wondering what's going to happen. And I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now, trumpets are used to announce things. To this day in the military, they would at least play reveille. You know, what's reveille mean? Get up, it's time to go. You know, and then Taps. It's, it's the sign of somebody that's, that's passed, that they're mourning, or it, I don't know, do they use it to go to bed at night, or is it just when, when someone passes? Taps to go to bed at night, okay. So it's the, the end of a day, and we're, we're lying down to rest. And so that being said, in the nation of Israel, these horns were used, and they were literal horns made out of animal horns, and they, in, in, uh, in Israel, you can buy a shofar, they're way expensive. But you put your lips to it and you buzz and it just makes this woo, And it's like it's time for battle or it's time to move or it's, it's time for breakfast. I don't know. They're announcing things. So as these trumpets are given to the angels, they are blown. And when they're blown, things take place. And so these seven angels are given trumpets. They're given authority to announce. And it says in verse 2, or verse 3, then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. You remember John the Baptist's dad, was, it was his time to go into the temple and offer incense, and he would walk in with this incense censer that would hold incense and some coals, and then smoke would rise up before him, and it was symbolic of prayer. It was his time to go in and offer prayers. And so as this censer is given to this angel, he was also given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayer of the saints mixed together, ascended before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. Now we're going to stop there, because there's this picture of what the priest would do. They would go offer incense. But in this case, there's prayer 
that is already in the censer. So I would make the case for when we pray, it says the prayers of how many saints? All of them. It doesn't say the prayers of the saints that were put in stained glass. It doesn't say the prayers of super saints. It says the prayers of all the saints. We are made saints because of what Christ has done. So therefore, our prayers don't go up and, and, and hit the veil and stop. Our prayers go into the holy of holies, and they are kept very tight inventory of. And apparently they go into this censer, they're held there, and they are offered before the throne of God, and it says this angel is standing there, but it says much incense is added. And I would even make the case for that when we pray right now, incense is added to our prayers by our high priest, and his name is Jesus Christ. So turn with me to Romans chapter 8, where I believe the New Testament even teaches this, though I can't be emphatic upon it because it doesn't say the word incense there. But when we pray, Romans chapter 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us, and he basically filters through the stuff that's of God and the stuff that's not of God. And as his children, he ignores the stuff he needs to ignore, and he brings before the throne the things that should be brought before the throne. I'm thankful for that because I've prayed lots of foolish things over the years, but God has interceded on my behalf and made them good prayers. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. You ever not known what to pray? I would encourage you to pray anyway. We he already knows we don't know how to pray, and yet what it says there, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So just like Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done, the Holy Spirit and the Father's involved. We're going to find out that in verse 34, even Jesus is involved in praying on our behalf and filtering through those things and make them, making them what they should be. So in verse 34 in Romans 8, it says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So the Spirit intercedes on our behalf, the Father's involved, and then Jesus himself lives now to intercede for us. He's praying for you and I right now. You know, Lord, don't let them do that stupid thing. You know, Lord, change their thought. You know, he's, he's praying on our behalf so that we would live for our, the ultimate good and become more like Christ. And I would make the case for that's him taking our prayers that are already in the censer, getting ready to be offered, and he's actually taking this incense and entering it in so that when the coals go in there, it smells wonderful before the Lord. So maybe that was more than I needed to go into, but I just think it's a beautiful picture. Anything you have ever pray, prayed comes before the throne the right way, and it gets answered. He sees it. He hears our prayers. And I know that not only from the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. Think about it. Think about how many times you prayed something, and maybe you're not like me, and thought, why would God want to listen to me right now? I'm not one of his people. I'm not an Israelite. I'm not in that covenant. I've done some things that pretty much I think should disqualify me from my prayers entering. And yet, in Genesis, in chapter 21, we see a woman who is a maidservant of Sarai, uh, Abraham's wife. And in this story, maybe you remember it, hopefully you do, uh, Sarah and Abraham have been told, you're going to become the father and the mother of a mighty nation. And yet, they're in their 80s and they have no children's. They're old. They're beyond uh, bearing. And yet what happens is that because of natural customs in their nation, they're young in the faith. They're like, hey, what the nations do, what our people do traditionally, can't be wrong if it's tradition, is we uh, give our servant to our husband and then he lays with her. 
and then produces a child and bears them on the mom's knees, and then that becomes her offspring, legally. And so maybe that's how God wants to work. And what we know about that is that becomes a big debacle because that is not God's plan. And so in Genesis chapter 21, um, as time goes on, God reveals, hey, Abraham, you made a big mistake. That's not the son of promise. I've promised that I would give you a son. You don't have to help my plans. And so as, she, as he finds that out, then all of a sudden, imagine this, Hagar and Sarah don't like each other because they're sharing a man. And that will not go well for anybody. You know, people often talk about Jacob's family and how he had all these wives and servants. And, and it's like, man, that would be the worst family life ever. It's a jacked up mess. It, try, you know, so anyway, before I go into that anymore, Hagar and Sarah don't like each other. And they start to dispute and fret and they got friction. And so Sarah says, why don't you send this woman away and her son? Because now we have Isaac and I'm afraid Ishmael's going to kill Isaac. They're going to have some dealings. And so God says, this is of me. I, I agree with her. Send them away. And so Abraham is broken and his heart is split. And in Genesis 21, verse 14, it says that Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water, putting it on her shoulder, Hagar. He gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and she wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba and the water in the skin was used up. She placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot. This is about a hundred yards. And she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and she wept. Verse 17 says, God heard the voice of the lad. He heard Ishmael. And then the angel of God called the Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And then God opened Hagar's eyes. She saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water. And gave the lad a drink. My point is, is that when our prayers grow up, when we come in faith, that God not only sees them, he then hears them, and then he acts. And actually, uh, Hagar is going to praise him as the God who hears. Before, when she wandered off, she's done this once before, she, she named Isaac, or excuse me, she named him Ishmael because God saw her. And then in this case, God hears. And so all that to say that when our prayers go up, whether they're answered right now when you think they should, at this point in Genesis chapter 8, our prayers are not only answered, but they also lead to blessing. And whether you like it or not, our prayer, our righteous prayers, lead to the judgment of the wicked. Did you know that? Our prayers lead to the judgment of the God-rejecting world. And we see that because as the incense and the prayers and the fire from the altar are all put together, the angel actually throws them down to the earth. And the prayers tilting over, if you will. You ever go to the Civic Center uh, swim area, the outdoor, what's that called? The water park, Farmington Civic Center water park. And they got that huge red bucket and it's just constantly filling up. And you're just waiting for toddlers to go stand under it and get knocked over and pummeled. But when it happens, it just spills over and it's just this uh, massive amount of water. Now, I don't think it fills up all the way because it should be way more than that. But that might be for safety. But my point is, when our prayers go up to heaven and they come to the full, it's like a bucket just like that. And as it tilts over, it spills over on the earth and that leads to judgment. So the earth is being judged. And in chapter 6, we saw all the, the seals loosed. And we see all these judgments and these horsemen. But it's primarily judgments of humanity getting themselves. We don't want you to lead us. Okay, here's the fruit of what it will be like if you're in leadership. And famine and wars and pestilences 
and false peace from the the ungodly uh, leader that comes on the white horse with no arrows. And so after that, there's more judgment that comes in much in the same way, but it's on top of the judgment we've already seen in chapter 6. So the common graces that God affords all mankind. Think about it. God says in in the psalmist or the Proverbs, it says that it rains on the just and it rains on the unjust. Now, we might think of rain as a bad thing. We got a rainy day. We're kind of bummed. But for a guy with crops, rain's a wonderful thing. So it rains on the just and on the unjust. There's negative and positive consequences from rain for all mankind, no matter whether they're godly and submitted to him or not. But in this case, the things that we take for granted, God strikes them. He strikes a third of them, destroys all of them. So in chapter 8, verse 7, as we move on, the judgments begin. Well, I stopped there early in verse 5. It says, The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquake. And if you remember chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, proceeding from the throne were lightnings and thunderings. So here we are. Here's the target for the lightnings and thunderings. It says, verse 6, the angels, the seven angels, who had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. Now, I don't know if it was like a band concert. You know, they start licking their lips and prepping, getting their reeds wet if they're you know, playing a, a woodwind instrument. But here they are. They're getting ready to blow. They're taking deep breaths, getting ready to pronounce. And as they do, verse 7 says, the first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So a third of the trees, a third of the crops, a third of the fruit of the earth. Not, this is on top of what already the famine they've already had. But it makes me wonder if the first judgment, the famine that we saw in chapter 6, wasn't necessarily because there wasn't enough food. The crops were fine. But it says here the crops are a third of them being destroyed. Now think about this. The rider that was on the horse had scales in his hand. And that's a sign of commerce in chapter 6. But it's also, perhaps, if you think about it, maybe they were rationing out food to nations. Much like we might be rationing out hand sanitizer or toilet paper. They were rationing out food. And because of the rationing, uh, there was famine. And I tell you this, um, many times, even now, by the way, there's enough food on the earth to feed all of mankind. But because of selfishness, because of hoarding, because we, we just like to build bigger barns and store more rather than sending out and being a blessing, the, the whole earth has famine in it right now. Jesus even said, you'll always have the poor with you until I return. And so the reality is the, fam- the first famine, I wonder if it was because of selfishness and maybe even politics, not because there wasn't enough food. But here, hail, fire, not hellfire, but hail and fire are mixed together with blood, which is a sign of purity. If you think about blood being sprinkled in any part of the Old Testament, it was for- to purify the element. So this is pure judgment. Hail and fire going down on the crops, destroying all the fruit of these trees, and at the same time, all grass. Now, maybe you're a a cattle farmer or know someone who is. If you don't have grass, if you don't have hay to feed your animals, if it's all destroyed, there's going to be a major famine because all of a sudden the livestock's got nothing to eat. Whatever's stored up, and then it's gone. And so uh, the famine will, the real famine will really begin. And then it says in verse 8, The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So sea and sea life and ships are destroyed. The sea being destroyed, but what happens is that there's, he says, that there's something like a great mountain. Remember that John is living in 90 AD or so. 
And he's seeing things, just like if you read the book of Ezekiel, God reveals things to Ezekiel that are going to happen and haven't happened yet. And yet he's revealing things. He's describing them in a way that he would know. He's using words that he knows. He's not going to be able to describe. I think, just for my thoughts, I think this is an asteroid coming out of the sky. It's on fire and it lands in the ocean. Now, if an asteroid's going to hit the earth, it's 70% ocean and, and 25 to 30% land. So if that's the case, it's more likely to hit the ocean, right? But when it hits, it's on fire. It comes into the atmosphere. But John's he doesn't know words like asteroid. He knows words like, I know what a mountain looks like. In other words, it's big, but it's a mountain that's on fire. And so it's cast into the ocean and as it does this, a third of the ocean becomes blood. Doesn't that harken back to Exodus where God turns the river Nile into blood? God's able to do that, right? He's done it before and he'll do it again, apparently. He's never going to judge the earth again by a flood, but he didn't say he wouldn't judge the earth with blood. And so is John seeing an asteroid? Perhaps. Now my question is, have we ever seen the ocean turn into something that's blood-like? Well, even today, there's something called red tide. Now, I did very little, very little research on this. But what I know about it is that there's this algae and this phytoplankton and all these other big words that I don't know what they mean, that when they all blossom underwater at the same time, there are certain forms of them that release this red dye that's actually a toxin. Now, they don't always bloom at the same time, but when they do and everything lines up, it will turn an entire coastline into this red tide. And when the red tide comes in, you go fishing, don't eat what comes out of that water because it will have the toxins in it. And it's deadly. And it kills all the animals and the sea creatures that are living in that water. My point is, is that it's not that far-fetched that that could actually be a red tide that just happens at the same time. We don't know that. Uh, it's just a thought. But in this case, it doesn't say in my Bible, blood-like. It says it turns into blood. So I'm going to take it literally and say that the, the, the ocean, a third of it, becomes blood. But the results, no matter, is death of food sources, death of aquatic life. Uh, what does it matter if the ships go down? Well, a third of the world's shipping companies that send things over the water lose not only the people that are working for them, but also the cargo. It just floats to the bottom of the ocean. So some of that food, maybe. It could add to the worldwide famine that's going on. But also many people are killed because of it. How exciting. Third trumpet. The third of the then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Now we've seen that a third of the ocean is turned into blood, but we don't drink the ocean water. As a matter of fact, if we drink enough of it, it'll kill you. There's too much salt in it. But fresh water, however, is something we kind of take advantage of, right? We kind of just assume it's always going to be there. But if you taint the fresh water source, we've got major problems. And so in this case, it seems that the fresh water is struck with something that's poisonous or harmful. Now think about this in the case of our own history. Think about 1986. Chernobyl happens. Chernobyl, it, not only it's nuclear fallout, and it affects everything, but it also affects something very deeply, and that's the fresh water sources. And anything that touches it becomes bitter. Now, the word wormwood translated in Russian actually translates to the word Chernobyl. I find that quite interesting. But another thought is that in the Bible, many times we've seen bitter water. Uh, one time, it is in Exodus chapter 15, the, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. They're in the desert. They have no water. They come to a source of water, and they get to it, and they find out that there's some, it's poisonous. 
It's bitter. We can't, oh great, there's water here and we can't even do anything with it. And so they cry out and they grumble and complain to Moses. And Moses, by the Lord, heals the water and it becomes fresh. And they're all able to drink and survive off of it. So God has laid down this pattern of making bitter water pure. That's what it's like when he's taking care of it. And yet, when we say, I don't want you, God, he goes, fine, I'll give you back the bitter water. And so in this case, and again, in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 38, we see this story of the, these prophets that are all out in the wilderness and they're going to cook some food. And Elijah says, why don't you cook some food for everybody? somebody apparently is wandering out there and they take their shirt and they make a basket out of it and they find these gourds and they put these gourds in there. They don't know what it is. They slice it up and they make a stew out of it. And as they're boiling it and they, they're all excited, they're getting ready to eat a meal together. And one of the guys takes a bite and goes, oh, this is horrible. There's death in the pot. It's bitter. And so Elijah, the prophet that does miracles, takes flour, puts it in there. Apparently the Lord heals it and makes it edible and makes it sustenance for them. That's what God does. He takes bitter things, he makes them pleasant or sweet. And in this case, as God gives them over to what they want, we don't want you in charge of things, that's fine. The world is going to become bitter to you. And so they receive the fruitfulness of their bitterness and this judgment allows what I believe to be an atomic bomb to be dropped on the earth. Now, we don't know if it's because of events that are going on at the time, but all it says in this judgment is that there is a a great star that fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of this star is Wormwood or Bitterness. A third of the waters became bitter, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter." Now, I'm going to take a little rabbit trail, so stick with me. But in Proverbs chapter 5, Solomon warns those who would listen of the immoral woman. And you're going to say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the language that he uses to warn of this immoral woman is actually contrasted with wisdom personified. And so in chapter 5 of Proverbs, it says, my son, pay attention to my wisdom, lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge for the lips of an immoral woman drip honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. I don't think that that's a coincidence that that word is there. So Going into this immoral woman leads to bitterness or wormwood. Her end, the way she ends, is bitter. Now, contrast that with godly wisdom. As we go on, it says, Sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. Lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable. You do not know them. Therefore, hear me now, my children. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. So two water sources, think about it like that. One water source is the immoral woman, and her steps lead to death, and her end is wormwood or bitterness. But he says instead, verse 7, do not depart from the words of my mouth. Now think about this, the source of life Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you knew who you were speaking to, John chapter 4, you would ask water from me and I would give you a river of living water. Source of true life. He's not talking about real water. He's talking about the wisdom they follow. And in the context of Revelation chapter 8, we have these judgments on the earth. The world has trusted in the wisdom of Satan the wisdom of following after pleasure, the wisdom of getting my will done. And what we find out here is that the source of water that we sustain our lives on is going to fail us. And then the question is, where do we get our water from? And in this case, we're not talking to believers. We're talking to the God-rejecting world. God's judging everything that they've trusted in. You've trusted in commerce. 
You've trusted in the fish of the sea. You've trusted in vegetation and the fruit that comes from the trees that God's provided. Okay, I'm going to take these things away. I'm going to take away your economy. I'm going to take away this, this fruitfulness of the land. I'm going to take away the ocean and your trade and you know, every bit of trade you can do. I'm even going to take away your fresh water so that you'll look towards me. And then the heavens are struck. Verse 12, back in Revelation 8. He says, Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. So these immovable fixtures, you know, the sun, the sun will come up tomorrow, you know, like those beautiful ditties, but will it? Will the sun come up tomorrow? Is that a guarantee? And I would say that we live as if it is a guarantee. But in the tribulation, God's going to take these light fixtures and the bulb's going to start to go out. It's going to start to flicker. It's going to start to not work anymore. But it says here that he's going to strike the sun and the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them will be darkened and a third of them did not shine and likewise the night. So the reason that I believe that this is going to be some sort of nuclear fallout is number one, because the entire world is armed with nuclear stuff. How many things do they create for war that never get used? Zero. They all get used eventually. Otherwise, they have to disarm them. But 90% of what's created to kill and destroy and to keep peace, one of them is even called the peacemaker. <laughs> it's like, well, it'll make peace. It may not be peace on earth. It might be silence, but it will be a peacemaker. But in this case, I believe that this fallout we're reading about in this judgment in the fourth judgment is actually the heavens being struck because of this nuclear winter. Now, we could thumb wrestle over whether or not that's the case or what he's talking about, but it seems to be that the days and the nights are shortened. Visibility is lost because of fallout, all the things that are stirred up and in the air. And so, no matter what you think about those judgments, verse 13 goes on to say, And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe! Woe! Woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. This angel comes on the scene basically to say, you think that was something, these first four? You ain't seen nothing yet. Baby, you haven't seen nothing yet. It's going to be worse than ever. And these are primarily probably physically explainable judgments, right? You know, we, uh, the, the unregenerate, the God-rejecting mind could say, oh, well, of course, we set off a bomb and this is what happened. They wouldn't see it as judgment from God. They would see it as, well, this is what happens when, when so-and-so's the president. You know, <laughs> blame Trump, blame Obama, blame whoever is the world leader at the time. That's what they'll do. They won't look to God. They'll say, well, there's an explanation for this. We like to explain away any spiritual possibilities. That's the hardened heart of a God-rejecting world. But what we find is that when he cries out, whoa, whoa, one for each of the judgments, by the way, if angels that stand in the presence of God, who have seen him in all of his awe and wonder, look at the judgments that are going to happen and say, whoa, you better believe they're going to be intense because they've seen the throne of God, that nothing catches them off guard, and yet these judgments that were about to be released. Now, woe actually means unbearable sorrow or extreme distress, an angel in distress. By the way, we're prone to exaggerate, tell fish stories, and kind of blow things up to make it a little bit more exciting. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible does not exaggerate. It doesn't use terms uh, capriciously. It uses terms that, that fit the bill. And so, but don't get it confused with woe. I was actually looking for a picture of Joey from Blossom. If you guys ever watched Blossom, I think it was in the 90s or maybe the 80s, but you had Blossom. And he, whoa, 
you know? <laughs> anyway, that's for me. But anyway, woe means to stop, slow down, or to express surprise or interest. I think both probably apply. But in this case, the inhabitants of the earth, woe unto them because of the three remaining trumpet judgments. So since we're not going to finish the trumpet judgments this week, I'm out of time. I, if you think all of these things that would definitely happen are going to turn mankind to God, I would submit to you that man's hearts by this point in the tribulation are so hard that even these things, they don't start crying out to God. We already saw the biggest prayer meeting ever at the end of chapter 6. The biggest worldwide prayer meeting ever. All mankind prayed to, not Jesus, but they prayed to the mountains, cover us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And yet here, many more have been saved in chapter 7 and then in chapter 8 and then chapter 9. We see all these other judgments. You think, surely people will turn to the Lord. And yet, what we're going to see at the end of chapter 9 next week, spoiler alert, verse 20, the rest of mankind, chapter 9, verse 20, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And lest you think we're past the days of wizardry and Wiccan and all that supernatural stuff, the word sorcery there actually is, in the Greek, it's pharmakia. It's drug use for the sake of creating hallucinations that make us think that, that they don't believe in reality, and so they create their own using these different drugs. And in our day and age, we're already there. People are not repenting of their drug use. They're addicted to things that they're chemically dependent upon now. Even prescription drugs. You can't get them right now. because The people that need them even can't get them because people abuse them. But my point being that no matter how bad these, ju these judgments get in the Great Tribulation, mankind is still bent on my way or the highway. They will not repent. And chapter 9 you think chapter 8 was something. Chapter 9 is going to be supernatural, physically unexplainable things that happen, and yet mankind at the end still will not repent. And I want to submit to you that God's heart is still that they would repent. He hasn't stopped the ability in the tribulation for them to repent, and yet what it tells us here is that they won't. So the question becomes, how do we know whether or not somebody's willing to repent. How do we decide who to share the gospel with? And I would submit to you, share it with everybody and see what they do with it. It's like the parable of the sower. Jesus said a, a sower went out and sowed seed among these different soil conditions. I've always wondered, why in the world is he sowing seed on top of rocks? We're, we're smarter than that. We like prepare the ground and we don't waste the seed because it costs a lot. But God's not worried about wasting seed. He's worried about souls being saved. And he casts it everywhere. And I would submit to you, in the day and age that we live in, people are questioning eternity. Share the stinking gospel. I don't mean that it's stinking. I just mean to emphasize. Share it. Open your lips. This is not the time to be silent. Jesus saves to the uttermost. And if we will just share what he's done for us, that he died for us, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, that he's the solution to sin and death. There ain't no vaccination that can save you from eternal death and separation from God. There won't be one ever, except for Jesus. Jesus came to save. So tell the world, so that even might at the end of all things, when the tribulation, say they make it to the tribulation, they would at least be able to go, I remember when so-and-so said to me, and he trusted it, and he gone. It's my time. And then he'll have to die for his faith, or she'll have to die for their faith, but all of eternity, we'll get to celebrate together. So, that being said, I know that that's not really a Mother's Day message, but even moms, we warn our children of things that will harm them, right? Uh, we could take a note from that. Who in your life needs to receive the, 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 the reminder that God loves them 
and he died for their sin. That's motherly wisdom. Tell your kids you love them. Tell these people that God loves them. Maybe that's just me and my weird attempt to try to tie it in, but happy Mother's Day. God bless you guys. I know there's several moms in my life that I'm praying for um, that are going through a rough week. And so, um, anyway, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, um, that every piece of it is inspired by you um, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, for a subtle nudge to send us out to share the gospel, but also to show us how hard the unrepentant heart is. Lord, continue to soften our hearts. But for the grace of God, but for your work on the cross, we would all enter into that very judgment. And it gets worse from there. And so, Father, thank you that you saved us. Thank you that you're making us whole. Thank you that in eternity we get taken away from all those things. But there is a whole world still dying to know you. And I pray, Father, would you use us in the way that we love one another, the way that we are generous, the way that we show your love to, uh, to our enemies even, to those that don't know you. Use us to soften those that are going to receive and that you're going to grant repentance to. Lord, we, we long to see revival. We long to see people give their hearts to you. So we pray for it. Thank you for moms. Thank you for uh, the way that you show us your love in a very special way through them. Bless their socks off today. Help us to honor our mothers. And uh, Lord, we love you. Thank you once again for this beautiful day. Thank you for bringing us back together. Hear our prayers. Help us to not be negligent in them. Thank you that you're going to answer them. And uh, Lord, hear our praise here in a minute as we close. In Jesus' name, amen.